the episode 1359 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at Sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini-episode 1359. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here. And we have back on with us FDH Hoops Analyst slash FDH Lounge Dignitary, my old friend Ben Chu, coming back on here uh, to break down the 2021 NBA Finals. And this is now the seventh time that the Finals have come and gone. This is going back to 2015, where Ben has, on this show, correctly forecast the NBA Finals. Uh, The first four years of that run, he and I got it right all four years. Those would be, of course, the Cavs-Warriors years, uh, which means that, uh, again, we both went out on a limb in 2016, picked the Cavs to win it. We were right on that. The other three were kind of easier picks. And uh, last year, I would say Lakers over Miami was kind of an easier pick. But much like 2016, in 2019 and 2021, Ben went the other way, and uh, he went against the grain. So three times out of seven, at least, He seriously went against the grain and got it right, including this year. I was among the many who did not with Phoenix, not least of which because, again, none of us really thought the Greek freak would be in any condition to do what he did during the finals. I think I'd have picked Phoenix probably even if I knew he was going to be at full strength, so I'm not going to fall back on that as an excuse, uh, nor am I going to use that to begrudge Ben. Seven for seven, my man, uh, and an unbelievable success rate and probably something that nobody else out there can claim. Congratulations. You see, now, Rick, I now finally get to edge my name next to Harry Connick Jr. for his Super Bowl predictions. That's right. That's for, right. For lengthiness and timeliness of it. But, again, if, we, if you even go back into the podcast, you can even say that the logic I even dictated was incorrect, but it ended up being correct at some point anyway. So, well, it doesn't matter how the prediction pans out. It's just that all that matters that you were correct. And as uh, somebody who was a documented 54, po- or, I'm sorry, 55.4% on all NFL games last year on the show, I say to you, welcome to the stratosphere, my good friend. But uh, that's the kind you of... You realize 55.4 is not that high, Dude, that's a 3% success rate on, on all games in the NFL for the year. I mean, that's every freaking game, buddy. That doesn't happen. So, you know... I don't don't begrudge me my place in the stratosphere, man. <laughs> Every coin flip can always be right six out of ten times. So that's all <laughs> I was flipping a lot of coins, buddy, but they came up the right <laughs> way. And uh, yeah, fifty five point four. By the way, speaking of uh, stats, uh, but before we get into this uh, to any kind of serious degree, as far as any kind of questioning about whether Milwaukee has a big three or not for the new league champions. Uh, and I think a lot of that would fall under, uh, is Drew Holiday, somebody that would uh, fall into that. There is something when you look at this Milwaukee roster that is much more akin to what we see in Major League Baseball uh, when, when you talk about the concept of platooning, 
because if you look at it statistically, and this is one of the longer names in the league, Milwaukee has a franchise center by the name of Brooke Lopez Bobby Portis. And Mr. Brooke Lopez Bobby Portis uh, had 23.7 points per game and 12.1 rebounds per game this past season. So that, that long-named gentleman right there uh, certainly could be part of a big three or even big four. I mean, the real question, too, as we've discussed during the entire season, is that is majorly just the Bucks, or was just that team that always kind of had this consistency in terms of underperforming in the playoffs. Right. And it kind of showed that and some of that sort of issues they had with mental toughness prior in the past didn't really exist in this timeline. But in the overall just composition of the roster, I mean, that's essentially why they gave up all that draft capital and Eric Bledsoe for Drew Holiday and what he was able to accomplish with them during the run. Well, let us not forget that Giannis and his overall numbers were insane and amazing, but Drew Holiday pretty much in two of these games made game-changing plays that essentially put them into this position to begin with. So I agree with I, that. I think the whole big three, big four, big two notion is kind of an overrated commodity anyway. Because we've seen it multiple times in timelines of other NBA champions where you can have one legendary player but have two really good players and it's good enough at the end. Well, exactly. And that's a thing where you look at it and I think a lot of us coming into the finals would have said that uh, Phoenix had probably built to the point of having a big three with the third piece, of course, being DeAndre Ayton. Nobody would have really questioned Booker and Paul coming into this, but Ayton, the way that he had elevated his game, especially through the playoffs, and yet you look at it, and uh, I wonder if that was perhaps a little bit hasty. Through the first two games in the finals, make no mistake about it, he was a huge uh, component of Phoenix jumping out to that lead, but uh, one way or another, and yeah, there might have been some questionable whistles in the course of the next four games, but uh, he had a chance to prove that he's definitively a part of a big three there, and I think that chance might have come and went. Right, and I think if we're being honest about Phoenix, I don't want to put all this on Chris Paul or DeAndre or Kevin Booker. It just kind of felt like Phoenix had a very good opportunity in game four of the series to go up three games to one and pretty much close the series out in game five. And they were unable to do that in that pivotal game four. And it just kind of felt like the way the series was going. And this was a comment that a a close friend of mine here in Portland made to me while we were watching these games, that in game one and game two, the margin of victory for for Phoenix was sizable, but it it didn't feel like in game one or game two that Phoenix really woke the doors off of Milwaukee. And we went back into the uh, matchups during the regular season. Both games were hotly contested and combined at a margin of two points in the point differential. That's right. It's very hard for me to get any sort of... it, It feels more like... The analogy I would make is it felt more like Milwaukee won this, took control and won this series, Mm -hmm. more than Phoenix kind of collapsed and ran out of gas at the end of the day. Yeah, it is interesting when you look at it, the games that Milwaukee won, uh, the way that they really kind of pulled away. And, of course, Game 4 stands out as as the epitome of that, uh, the way that uh, the Suns had a chance to take that 3-1 lead. And it got away. That said, uh, and you and I had talked about this, I think it was an ESPN article talking about series over every five years we've had an epic series. And I I don't know if we necessarily call this one epic or at least on par with 2016. I wouldn't quite put it there. 
But the one thing is, Game 4 of that series, I'll tell you what, as a Cavs fan, that was uh, an epic kind of letdown by the Cavs. Uh, and, of course, to fall behind 3-1, thus setting the stage for, I'll say it, the Warriors to blow a 3-1 lead. But that next day, I remember that game was on a Friday night. On a Saturday, I made a point. I was going to the store. I was running errands. I was wearing Cavs gear. I didn't see one single person anywhere wearing Cavs gear. This is 10 days before the parade, mind you, when there would be 1.3 million people. I mean, so there were not there at the parade. So there were not a lot of believers after the Cavs blew a 3-1 lead, but they believed in themselves enough. Or after that, I'm sorry, they fell behind 3-1. It's the Warriors that blew a 3-1 lead. Freudian slip. But anyways, one way or another, Phoenix just didn't have that same element within them that the Cavs did five years ago because it really seemed to suck the air out of the balloon when they let that game get away. Yeah, and I think also more, too, it wasn't necessarily even game four. It was more of game five, in my opinion, where well, that too. it kind of looked like they had an opportunity, as we all remember, like if Devin Booker doesn't look, it takes that jump shot probably a little bit earlier in the shot clock in the fourth quarter of that game. They had a chance to go up by one or two points and really force Milwaukee into a final possession, but then Drew Holiday had that sealed end up in that Giannis and one attempt at the rim. It just... It, it just felt like to me, and this is the question that I've always kind of had with a Chris Paul run team, is that Chris Paul is one of the greatest point guards that I've probably seen in my lifetime. But for some reason, it just seems like when the playoff lights get bright, whether it's strategy by his opponents or other sort of coalescing factors turn into play against him, it just kind of feels like Chris Paul just cannot get to that next gear that I think a lot of guys can get to. And again, this is nothing, it's not a shot at Chris Paul, but this is just a general consensus that I kind of feel like that Chris, that Chris Paul is a fantastic Hall of Fame caliber guard, but he just doesn't have that little extra sort of bit that kind of will end the series at the end of the day. Yeah, and I, I think that's probably true, sadly enough, and I think Devin Booker is still growing into being that kind of player, which kind of left them at a crossroads here. But yeah, yeah, I mean, one thing I will note too, Rick, is, is that I'm not saying that Chris Paul is a bad player and not a Hall of Fame no, player or anything along those lines. That's clear. That's it just feels like there are times when if Paul is forced to either be the number one option constantly or he's getting constantly double teamed with the Bucks did constantly in the series and in Milwaukee. It just felt like to me that Paul just and the Phoenix Suns just didn't really have an answer for it at that point. Well, yeah, I mean, they counted on him to such a large degree uh, that, yes, uh, at any point in time when uh, he wasn't going to be able to, to come through for one reason or another, that was going to be very, very injurious to their chances. And uh, again, you and I, and this has been primarily off-air, we've had some very epic debates over a period of time on the laws of probability and how things play into handicapping. I did text you early in Game 5 when everything was going Phoenix way, but I, I don't think they were even up 20 points. And I was like, I'd be nervous if I was Phoenix because you should be up more than this. And when the shots stop falling, are you leaving yourselves open? And to me, that's exactly what happened. They didn't have a big enough lead built up when they couldn't miss their shots. And then later on, when they couldn't hit water, if they fell out of a boat, Milwaukee just kind of, you know, raced into there, made it a game. And it was an epic finale, uh, the way that it came down to there in the end. But uh, I'm going to hold my, uh, my guns on that one there, that uh, had Phoenix had a bigger lead 
once the laws of probability turned around and the shots stopped falling, I think they might have been able to hold them off. I mean, to be honest, Rick, I don't really even count Game 5 as a game. They really choked away. Game 4, they had a, I believe, unless I'm mistaken, an eight-point lead with about three minutes to go in the yeah, game. Yeah, true. And I would, if you're going to point to a game, in my opinion, Game 5, you know, that, that was a coin flip scenario that happens. But if you're up two games to one and you have an eight-point lead with roughly three minutes to play, I think really great legendary championship teams know how to close that door and end the series. And it felt like that every time Phoenix would get close to ending it, Milwaukee would bounce back and play well. And you have to give the Bucks credit. Giannis was pretty much unstoppable for the final four games of the series. And a lot of the guys who have been much maligned during their careers, guys like Bobby Portis, Pat Connaughton, and Brooke Lopez, pretty much did their job in these pressure situations that helped them essentially win the series. I mean, listen, if I was uh, happening to be in uh, Milwaukee these days and feeling contrarian, I'd sit there at a table with a sign that says, Pat Connaughton is Michael Petrus, prove me wrong. But uh, that's just my take on it. (laughs) I think just generally, too, the way that sort of, and again, we have to give credit to Mike Budenholzer and his his staff for, making some very intelligent adjustments through the final four games of the series because there were a lot of people, and I've had, I've been out here in Portland, and there is a relatively high level of Phoenix Sun, Phoenix contingency out here, and it looked like, judging from those first two games, that they were, they were in control, and not that they were necessarily going to run away from the series, but they were going to be good enough at the end of the day to probably win it in six themselves. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's got to be a blow, and as I've said to you, I just recently uh, made sons, or made, made friends with a Phoenix Suns fan, and uh, that dude must be uh, feeling it right now, because he was saying Suns and four ahead of time, and I can understand that. I mean, coming into the series, uh, you know, with, with Giannis looking like he was going to be uh, iffy at best, but the way that he came through, I mean, it, it seems very, very clear to me that especially, I mean, that 50-point game, uh, in the deciding game here, uh, tying uh, the most in a uh, series clinching finals game with Bob Pettit in 1958. Uh, the the other games in the series, uh, the third game with uh, where he put up uh, 40 and 10. Uh, I mean, this is going to go down as as an all time epic, uh, you know, performance. So when you talk about the legendary players, what they do on the big stage, uh, the way that we look back on what Giannis did here. I think is going to compare to anything we talk about with Jordan and Kobe and LeBron and anybody in their finals uh, here, the, the way that he just asserted himself to such an insane degree. I mean, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'll say this, Rick. I think it's the greatest performance in a series clinching game in playoff history at this point. Very possibly. Yeah. Very I think that's what it is. I mean, it, to get 50 points in a game that you know that you to win like we, we've discussed this off air and during the last one it's like i still thought that milwaukee even if they blew it in game six would have had a at a loose a coin flip chance to win a game seven on the road but it it, it, it it in terms of coming up big when they needed to and if you even just look down the line chris Middleton had a pretty average game and you know you know and uh you know pretty much pat connington in game six couldn't hit anything they had Milwaukee just kind of needed to lean on Giannis, and he played very well, and he was very aggressive. And that's the big key to Giannis at the end. If he can stay aggressive and get in the paint and get good quality shots and make his free throws, 
which was kind of the entire story leading into the playoffs, which he did with 17 out of 19. He pretty much dominated the game at the end of it, and it just felt like even though Phoenix took a five-point lead in the halftime, that Milwaukee still had the advantage. It just kind of felt like that's just how that game was going to play out. Well, and this is the thing, too. What's truly remarkable about him doing it right here, right now, at this stage of his evolution is we've been waiting this whole time because his career has basically coincided with, because what you, you look at it probably when, when Steve Kerr got to Golden State in 2014, and, and the mo- this incarnation of the modern NBA and floor spacing and threes and whatever. And I think we've always thought, oh, my God, once this guy becomes a threat from behind the arc, you know, he'll be the most dominant thing ever. He's not at that point. He's not a threat uh, behind the arc that you really have to respect any kind of a degree. And he's still doing this with the game the way that it is right now. That That's remarkable because I wouldn't have forecast that he would attain this level by going against the grain, but here he is. Well, I mean, one point I do feel like we need to consider is, is that it was this is just sort of a experiential move almost is that we saw this with Shaq in the early 2000s. He was pretty much damn near unstoppable when getting into the painted area. And that's what essentially Giannis has done because of his athleticism and his ability to get to the basket. It's really hard to find a guy who has this sort of length and ability to guard because I'll even say this, that looking at the great defenders in this league, there isn't a lot of them that could even match up with them like Kevin Durant's probably the closest, but I would say Giannis is a bit faster and a bit more rangier around the basket than even Durant is. So True. It's going to be very interesting to see how he moves forward. And one thing that we have to know, too, is this Milwaukee team is pretty much locked in for their contracts for the next couple of years. The Big Four essentially have their contracts extended for at least two to three more years. And the other big keys in this championship team, guys like Bobby Portis and you know, Tim Britt Forbes, who are becoming, who are essentially going to become free agents, will probably resign. So this team is going to definitely have another shot at a title in the Eastern Conference over the next two to four years. Because if we're being brutally honest, we still do not know how the Nets are going to pan out. We don't know if Billy's going to trade Ben Simmons, and we still have that big question mark if will Trey Young and the Hawks get there after overachieving this season. Absolutely, and I do want to take a little bit of a look ahead at Milwaukee's chances for getting another title here uh, once we bring this thing all the way around. But a few more notes on the series uh, itself. In in looking at some of the most uh, impressive uh, moments, individual moments over the course of finals in the last, let's say, 10 to 15 years, and again, there's a couple of them. I, as a Cavs fan, I'm going to say, uh, the shot, the block, and the stop, certainly from 2016, that trifecta. Uh, the big shot hit by uh, Ray Allen in, what was it, 2013, I think. You go on and on and on. The play that was made by Drew Holiday and then uh, lobbing it up to Giannis there uh, at the end, I mean, that's got to go on that short list, right? If you're making a highlight reel of the greatest moments in NBA Finals history, that's the one from this series, and that's one of the ones from the last several years maybe the greatest one we've seen since 2016, uh, of a moment in the finals that just makes you go, whoa, holy crap. Right, and, and I think the sort of the just level of that point to that is going to be 
not of that point, excuse me, but of that play is going to just be even more memory more. That Drew Holiday technically didn't even need to throw that pass at that point. He could have dribbled it out and gone foul. Yes. But he, he knew what was going on. He knew the situation. And essentially, even though Giannis missed that free throw, he, they were able to keep possession and, and essentially force another possession out of it. So, And I think it was a very heady, very smart play from a very high-quality player who I feel like, let's be honest, I don't think adequately gets his due for what he's able to do on the floor. He probably at this point is the best perimeter defender in basketball. Probably. In terms of at the guard position, and we, you, he deserves a lot of credit for this victory because I'll be honest, if he's if if we want to retroactively push Eric Bledsoe in here, I'm not necessarily sure that the result would be the same. Well, again, I, I agree with you. In fact, I'll go further and say I don't think the result would have been the same because, again, I, I'm like a lot of people where I scratch my head looking at this because Milwaukee really underachieved the last two seasons in the playoffs. Last year, going out in the first freaking round to Miami, and then two years ago, blowing the 2-0 lead against Toronto. Uh, again, as you said before, and that was one of the things where uh, I just felt like coming into this, they had a lot to prove as, as far as that goes. And you, you gave me the other side of the coin, which was that Phoenix was unproven at this level, which they ended up showing, I think, in the end. My thought was, yeah, but over the last 12 calendar months, They've been just about unstoppable. Going back to the bubble, you add Chris Paul to this team, a team that a lot of us didn't even pick as a playoff team, ends up being the number two seed in the West. They were just on an incredible run that went all the way up to game three in Milwaukee. And then even that, that was a thing where Milwaukee's back was to the wall. I don't think any of us thought this was going to be a short series if Giannis was in there and, and playing well. Uh, I think a lot of us thought it could have been a short series uh, if he wasn't uh, himself, essentially, or wasn't even playing. But you expect Milwaukee to win Game 3. Pissing away Game 4 the way that they did, I agree with you. That was a real turning point there. And then, again, at no point in Game 6 did Phoenix feel like they were ever really on the verge of coming back and taking control of it. They were struggling just to kind of stay close. And then, basically, just kind of ran out of time at the end there because they weren't able to make any kind of a run, and uh, this is, again, this is something that is going to shape a lot of legacies uh, coming out of this here. Uh, Giannis definitely, uh, you know, taking that step into the stratosphere of, of not just, he already was there for present-day NBA stars, but now this is all-time. He etches his name all-time uh, as a superstar by doing this. Chris Paul, unfortunately, coming up short, that just reinforces a narrative about him. Uh, he's become the first player in NBA playoff history to lose four series where his team was up 2 nothing. You can't put all of that on him, but some of that's going to reflect on him, unfortunately. Coach Bud, that's a guy that, again, you know, even when things are going well, he just maybe it's his demeanor where he just always looks confused. But, you know, he, he definitely takes a step up here uh, historically as far as uh, how he's gone. So, the, the outcome of this series and the way that it went, really, again, some of these folks are going to have a chance to redeem themselves in the history books, and maybe Chris Paul will get another look at it. But uh, some players uh, took a big step forward in a way where you can never take it away from them, and uh, some other ones like Chris Paul and some of the other figures in this thing still have something to prove. Right, and, and, and for especially with Phoenix outside of Chris Paul, they still have a very healthy championship window. People tend to forget Devin Booker's under 26. They do. 
Dean is under 24. Yes. And Mikael Bridges, who another guy who played well in the series for Phoenix, he's also under 25. So at the end of the day, Phoenix is going to have a bunch of chances at the Apple again. And it's going to come down to ultimately if Phoenix can sort of hedge and get maybe their point guard of the future or someone else to come in to determine what is going to be the best for them. One thing that I was a little puzzled by at periods of time was from uh, Monty Williams, even though I thought he did a relatively good to great coaching job in the playoffs, is I was kind of expecting maybe to see a little bit of a smaller two-guard lineup with him and with Paul and Campaign on the floor, but that never really materialized at any point. Maybe trying to push some tempo, push some pace a little bit more. But it's just going to be very interesting for, for Phoenix because this was a team, and we all tend to forget this, is that literally only three seasons ago they won only 18 games. Oh, yeah. Or 19 games, whatever the exact number is at that point. So they're now a very healthy-looking team in the West in a very, very packed but highly-tempoed Western Conference. And if you just kind of look at what Phoenix will be able to do in the coming months, it's going to be an attractive destination for a lot of players. So... It's going to be. Not, I would say if I'm a Phoenix fan, I'm not really too saddened by this loss. There's a lot of future potential with this franchise and this team moving forward. There is. I think Chris Paul's going to be back, but I think he's going to probably opt out to try to get a longer deal, and, and that is a smart move for him at this point here. And that gives them their best chance of bringing it home in the next one to three years. But with Milwaukee, at least they beat a Phoenix team in the finals that was at full strength because, again, the story of these playoffs writ large was all of the teams that woulda, coulda, shoulda been ultimate title contenders that were derailed by key injuries. Both L.A. teams, Brooklyn, those were the three strong favorites, I thought, coming into this thing. And, uh, again, they'll all be back next year, so... For Milwaukee, I'm not going to say that there's any kind of an asterisk on this. I'm not going to go there. But it's going to be a thing where I think, to me, they're still going to have to prove something the next couple of years by going through some of these really star-laden teams uh, to get there. Because let's face it, if Kevin Durant was paying better attention to where his foot was on the three-point line, uh, Brooklyn might have closed him out uh, anyways, even without uh, Kyrie Irving. So it's a situation where the next couple of years, and I think it's going to be very, very exciting because you have teams like Atlanta and Phoenix that are really on the brink, and you go beyond that, Denver, Dallas, but you've still got, you know, again, the Lakers, Clippers, Nets, like the next two to three years, Ben, I, I think it could be one of the most exciting periods in NBA history because you could have 10 legitimate title contenders, and we're just not used to seeing that. Right, and I think that's going to be very interesting to see overall. But at the end of the day, I mean, for Milwaukee, the important part is just to claim a championship. Because we, we, we always make these analysis points where it's about, well, what was the field in front of them, blah, blah, blah. But most of the time, if I'm being brutally honest, no one ever really cares about the road to the finals at that point. Where sure. You don't usually rate on a curve in right. these sort of scenarios. Right. But for Milwaukee to get this team to very similar to what the LeBron-era Cavs were, which was essentially one title, to another upper echelon-type legendary team, they're going to need to at least fill out their success. And it's going to be interesting to see where they kind of look forward to. Because we have to remember, too, is, is that normally what I would say is, is that they would be building maybe for free agency in the draft, but they don't have a lot of picks remaining. 
at this current time, and they're going to have to possibly pony up more money to get to keep free agents in Milwaukee. So it's going to be very interesting to see what their sort of landscape is moving forward. But they have they have a really big golden opportunity because I don't really think there's any team outside of maybe the Nets that are that have are going to be a, that big of a problem for the Bucks moving forward. Well, that at least in the next year or so, I think that'll be the case. Yeah. Now, one of the big questions is, to me, Atlanta, because the thing that separates, in my mind, Atlanta and Phoenix is that Phoenix got Chris Paul, and uh, again, not that Atlanta needed him because they had Trey Young, but that veteran piece, that star veteran piece, I think if you if you were to take an externality like that, put it in Atlanta, they become part of that conversation immediately. But but it seems like they're they're you know one player of that magnitude away because at the end of the day they just looked like the young team that they are at the end of the, the East Finals against Milwaukee. Right, and I think uh, we have to give Atlanta a lot of credit for getting to where they were. And I mean, you have to remember uh, there were a lot of points in this series where they dealt with injuries to Trey Young. And they still had guys who were still on the member. Remember, Bogdan, Bogdanovich had his injury issues yes. during this timeline. And we still truly didn't get to see this that team at full strength either. DeAndre Hunter was out for most of the Eastern Conference playoffs. And we still don't know what they have in Camp Reddish either. So they're going to be a very interesting foe moving forward for teams like Milwaukee and Brooklyn and, you know, other teams. And we also tend to forget to, Rick, there's a lot of other mid-tier teams right now, teams like the Knicks, teams like the, you know, teams like the Knicks, teams like the Blazers, teams like, you know, I know Minnesota has been absolutely dog crap for the last couple of seasons, but they have a really good core now with Anthony Edwards, Carl Anthony Towns, and D'Angelo Russell that they could become a threat if they can come to or under Chris Finch. So it, it seems like to me there's a lot of talent spread out throughout the league. And because of that, there's not necessarily a guarantee that Milwaukee is going to be in their best position to repeat. But at this point, the one thing I would feel I can be honest with is that with Coach Bud and with that franchise, that they have a very healthy franchise. They have a lot of great ownership there. So they have a lot of money, and they're, I'm pretty sure they'll be willing Yeah, and that's very important. By the way, when we're talking about teams here over the next couple of years, not to be that guy who sits here in gravy trains, but let's say you take an Evan Mobley and insert him on the North Coast. You, you could be talking about one more possible contender in there, dare we say. <laughs> or if I like to say at the end of the day, this is not a Cleveland Cavaliers podcast, but hey, it's close enough. <laughs> well, I'm a lifelong Cavaliers honk, so you're going to have that element uh, to be sure. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a very very uh, exciting and interesting uh, finals here. Uh, the last note that I have is that uh, we talked about this during the finals that uh, it, it, it's it's relatively rare that you get something like a game five where it's two two and uh, the, it's uh, the, the game five many times of course ends up being decisive as it was here. Uh, so you had to go back a number of years for that to be the case. In 2016, there was a Game 5 under those circumstances, or 2015, I should say. And uh, that was uh, that was one where Game 4 was really the hinge game. Because I think Steve Kerr had kind of gone into that Soma coma and let the Cavs get the two wins there. And uh, my, my good friend, FDH Lounge original dignitary Chris Galloway, was at Game 4. And I told him going in, I said, if we take this tonight, 
we're going to win the series. If we don't, it's over because they're just going to steamroll past us. So to me, Game 4 was the hinge of that series, not Game 5. But generally, Game 5, when it's 2-2, is a big hinge game. I think it happened in 2013. Uh, and I think it happened in 2011 as well. So there hadn't been as much of that in recent years, and we did get to see that in this series of where, you know, there is a super decisive game within the series that is not the deciding game itself. Right. And I think, too, is, is that it's a, in recent history, too, we'll know, Rick, is that just with teams coming back from a 2-0 deficit in the finals, only three teams in the history of the league have even done that, we include the Bucks is that it's really hard for a team to blow a 2-0 lead in the finals only with this current formatting of 2-2-1-1-1. Right. Because you're guaranteed that extra game seven at home. And the reason why I kind of felt like that, the, the only re- one of the reasons why I felt I was more a little bit sold on Milwaukee winning this series is, is that I felt there was a higher probability that the Suns could have a letdown in game one, two, or five, just because of just the amount of energy that they put forth in the Clippers series more than what the Bucks had to do to dispatch the Atlanta Hawks. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Uh, you know, the road to the finals is always one that uh, is, is very indicative that you have to look at. And, uh, Again, it's the end of a long road for both of these teams, and uh, it ends up being a triumphant one for uh, Milwaukee. So uh, congratulations to the uh, Milwaukee Bucks. And uh, for Phoenix, again, it's a tough break, but uh, very close, and there's no reason that they can't be back here next year, albeit the road is going to be, as we say, a lot tougher if the top teams in the West are healthier at this time of year next year. So. We shall see. But uh, Ben Chu, my good friend, always a pleasure breaking this down. Congratulations yet again. Seven for seven in making your finals predictions on this show. You've called your shot every time successfully. You see, now I just feel like there's a jinx, and I'm not going to get to go eight for eight now. <laughs> you see, that's the problem now. I'm now concerned. But it's been a good run so far. We'll see if we can make it eight of eight next season. We shall see. I, I have confidence in you, my friend. Uh, I, I've been... I was there on a couple of them. I, I'm as we sit here. I'm what I'm five and two over that span, which is still pretty good. But like I said, I only went against the grain once. You went against the grain three times, and that's the reason that you were able to make it uh, happen. So congratulations to you, Ben Chu. Thank you for being here for us for another great conversation, and thank you everybody for checking out FDH Lounge Mini Episode thirteen fifty nine.